Welcome to episode 49 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we discussed the successful armed uprising in Shanghai of March 1927 and left off with a major conundrum facing the Communist Party. On the one hand, the party had grown in size and was poised to take part in the new revolutionary government, which had been installed as a result of the uprising. On the other hand, Shanghai had been occupied by units of the National Revolutionary Army, which were firmly under the control of the leader of the Guomindang right, Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang and his underlings had been explicit in the need to disarm the communists' worker militias and to maintain Shanghai as a place where the foreign powers who were exploiting China and which directly controlled large parts of Shanghai and other major Chinese cities could continue to do business as usual. Where we left off last episode, a communist initiative to force the Guomindang into conflict with the imperialist powers had been derailed by the Politburo of the Soviet Communist Party, in guidance which was sent by telegram and which judged the plan too risky. As we're going to see in this episode, the Communist Party was not going to have much more time to come up with new plans to try and salvage its position, or even really to save its own skin. Already in February, the head of the Special Services Bureau attached to Chiang Kai-shek's command had arrived in Shanghai and begun recruiting gangsters so that they could be used as enforcers for the Guomindang once the city was taken. And when Chiang Kai-shek arrived in Shanghai on March 26th, the first person that he met with was the chief of detectives of the French concession, the part of Shanghai ruled by France, who was also one of the top leaders of the Green Gang. Although, as we've seen in past episodes, the communists had a history of both working with and being opposed by the gangs of Shanghai, of which the most powerful was the Green Gang, we can see that by early 1927, the Green Gang leadership had taken a decision that the communists had to go. One of the main rackets that the gang ran was labor recruitment. As we talked about back in episode 19, one of the main things that gangs did was they controlled hiring at a lot of factories. If you needed a job, the gang could hook you up with a factory job, and then you gave a kickback from your wages to your foreman who would also be a gang member and in charge of hiring the workers under him. While communists had often joined gangs to gain entree to the Shanghai workforce early in their organizing efforts, as the communist unions grew in the city, there was just a basic structural conflict between communist visions of worker organization and unions and the way in which the Green Gang tried to control hiring and siphoned off part of workers' wages in exchange for procuring them jobs. So the Green Gang leaders did not relish the idea of a revolutionary Shanghai where the communists were influential in the government, even though at the lower levels of the gang, of course, there were a fair number of people who were excited about uh, many of the uh, ideas of workers' emancipation that the communists had. As an added bonus the Green Gang had just recently secured control of the opium trade in the city, and some sort of arrangement with the new military force controlling Shanghai was necessary in order to assure that their monopoly of the opium trade would remain unchallenged. 
So this was the other big thing that they were meeting with Chiang Kai-shek about when he got into town. And just as an aside, this need for the highest levels of the drug trade to find some sort of accommodation with ruling powers is a recurring phenomenon in history in a wide range of social and cultural contexts. It's so common that it's tempting to say that there's almost some sort of law of history that where a large-scale drug trade exists, there must be some section of the formal power structure which is protecting it. Although what form that accommodation takes and at what level it is reached uh, varies greatly. So, as I said, the first person Chiang Kai-shek met with when he got to Shanghai on March 26th was one of the top leaders of the Green Gang, and they got right to work in beginning to plan out how to crush the communists. But even as the Green Gang was preparing with Chiang Kai-shek to move decisively against the communists in Shanghai, the communists were kept off balance by the ambiguous nature of their relationship with the Green Gang. As we discussed last episode, some Green Gang members had fought against the revolutionary uprising, while others had fought for it, and after the uprising, there remained friendly relations with some parts of the gang, while antagonisms remained with others. For example, Wang Shouhua, the head of the Communist General Labor Union, was pledged as a disciple in the Green Gang under one of the gang's three top leaders, Du Yuesheng. This discipleship in the gang, where the top GLU leader was formally pledged to a top Green Gang leader, was part of the way in which the communists had navigated the gang's control over workers as the communists built the labor movement in Shanghai. During the build-up to the Third Armed Uprising, Du and Wang's relationship had remained very friendly, with Du apparently intervening to prevent the arrest of Wang and other leading communist unionists on several occasions or to secure their release once arrested. And one of the other top Green Gang leaders, Huang Jinrong, who was the one who met with Chiang Kai-shek that I mentioned earlier, would pass intelligence to the General Labor Union and had even apparently subsidized its, its activities. In fact, there appears to even to have been some consideration on the part of these Green Gang leaders that they could reorganize the Green Gang to serve a communist-dominated city government as long as the communists were willing to look the other way and allow them to continue with their opium operations uninterrupted. It seems that Du floated the idea to Wang, although things never moved beyond that. Meanwhile, in the wake of the armed uprising, the communist dog-beating squads had been revived, and gang members who had been particularly close to oppressive bosses in the cotton mills, and who had gained reputations as enemies of labor for their crimes against the people, were being targeted for retribution, with some being executed. And as part of this mobilization against oppressive gang foremen who collaborated with the imperialists, it was not uncommon for the workers involved to call for the overthrow of the gangsters. And so, even while there remained ambiguous but friendly relations between the Green Gang and the communists at the top levels, the workers' movement in Shanghai was developing in a way 
which couldn't coexist with the current gang-dominated form of labor organization in Shanghai's factories. So there was this weird situation where on the ground, things were very antagonistic between the communists and a section of the Green Gang, and there was a clear structural opposition between the communist vision of labor emancipation and the labor racket that the gang was operating. But there were also gang members who were sympathetic to the communist vision on the lower levels. And at the highest levels, there were these weird friendly relations between the communists and the gang leaders. And this weird situation seems to have dulled the communists' edge in recognizing the immediate danger that they were in from the gangs and their collaboration with Chiang Kai-shek. Chiang and the Green Gang completed their preparations and moved against the communists in Shanghai on April 12th. Actually, you could say that Chiang's coup started on April 11th, although the date that we use for the coup is April 12th, because the first act of the coup was to decapitate the General Labor Union by taking out Wang Shouhua, and that happened on the night of April 11th. Wang had uh, been invited to dinner at the home of the Green Gang leader, Du Yuesheng, and for all the reasons that we've just discussed, Wang had good reason not to suspect any sort of a trap. But what happened was that when Wang got there, some of Du's underlings beat him up savagely, then they threw him in a sack, drove out to a remote, a remote forest area, and buried him alive. During the very early morning of April 12th, hundreds of gangsters were allowed to pass through the French concession and international settlement uh, with the cooperation uh, of the authorities, of the uh, foreign authorities in those areas, in order to attack the workers' pickets and the general labor union. At 4.30 a.m., gangsters opened fire on the headquarters of the general labor union. A short time later, troops from the National Revolutionary Army showed up and claimed to be there to, quote, suppress internal strife among the workers, end quote. But then, when the leader of the GLU's pickets came out of the building, he and his men were disarmed and led back into the building. It quickly became clear that the attack by the gangsters was meant to serve as a pretext for the direct intervention of the National Revolutionary Army to disarm the workers' militias. Joe and Lai barely escaped the building in the chaos that followed as the gangsters were allowed into the building to disarm the pickets. Similar attacks on other locations of the workers' pickets took place across the city over the course of the morning, with about 60 workers killed and 200 wounded in the fighting. In the afternoon later in the day, a large mass meeting was held in support of the workers' right to bear arms, which was estimated at least to have 20,000 people attending and which one source put at 50,000. The meeting called a general strike to begin the next day, April 13th, and 2,000 workers marched from the meeting and retook the headquarters of the General Labor Union from the soldiers who were occupying the building, who retreated peacefully when they saw that they were outnumbered by the workers. They held on to the building until the following afternoon when they were attacked and driven out again in a bloody battle. Despite the escalating violence, Joe and Lai and some others were allowed to escape a second time, this time deliberately, because the leader of the troops, 
the younger brother of the right-wing commander of the National Revolutionary Army in Shanghai, Bai Chongshe, knew Zhou from their days at the Wampoa Academy, the big training center for the officers of the National Revolutionary Army down south in Guangdong. Despite the repression going on in the city, a couple hundred thousand workers observed the general strike on April 13th, and a big rally and mass meeting was held with about 60,000 people participating. During the rally, there was a brief clash with soldiers from the NRA who fired into the crowd and wounded over 100 demonstrators. The mass meeting drew up a set of demands, which included returning arms to the workers, suppression of the gangs, justice in the case of the death of Wang Shouhua, return of property to the unions, and compensation for the families of those killed and injured in the repression. Here's how the historian Steve Smith describes what happened next in his book, A Road is Made, Communism in Shanghai, 1920-1927, which gives the most comprehensive English-language account of the events in Shanghai, and which I've relied on heavily for our episodes on Shanghai. Quote, At 1 p.m., a parade set off for the headquarters of the second company of the 26th Army to present the petition. They were led by a military band and union banners, followed by pickets, labor unions, and members of the Organization of Toilers Children and various civic organizations. The only arms the marchers bore were iron bars. At around 4 p.m., as they were filing along Baoshan Road in the pouring rain, Machine gunners opened fire without warning near the corner of Hongsheng Road. Attackers swarmed out of adjacent alleyways, stabbing, shooting, and clubbing the panic-stricken crowd. Because the adjacent alleys were so narrow, the crowd could not easily escape the troops with their fixed bayonets. In all, more than 100 were killed, some 200 wounded, and about 50 unaccounted for. It took eight trucks several hours to clear the streets of corpses. End quote. The strike remained strong the next day, April 14th, but it petered out over the next few days in the face of the increasing repression, which included raids on unions, student groups, the Shanghai municipal government, which was dominated by the left, and even the offices of sections of the Guomindang in which the left wing was influential. Thousands of communists and alleged communists were rounded up, with many being executed. The total number of dead varies depending on the sources one looks at, but somewhere between 2,000 and 5,000 communists and other progressives, mainly union militants, were killed in Shanghai between April 12th and the end of 1927. This included many of the most visible and influential leaders among the working people of Shanghai. A major blow was struck against the Communist Party in Beijing as well, right about the same time. The warlords who ran Beijing were angry at how the nationalists had basically defeated them in southern China with the help of Soviet military aid. And so, on April 6th, they conducted a raid on the Soviet embassy in Beijing. Now, Beijing, like all other major Chinese cities, had a foreign military presence in it at the time, and all the foreign embassies were located in a part of the city called the Legation Quarter. So, 
for warlord troops to enter the legation quarter and to raid the Soviet embassy, they needed the permission of the Japanese, European, and American diplomats in Beijing. So this raid was conducted with the total support of the imperialist powers. Anyways, the Soviet embassy wasn't like one building. It was a big, walled-off compound like the other embassies. And Li Dajiao, the co-founder of the Chinese Communist Party, and really the most important leader of the party in the north of the country, lived in a house in the embassy compound with his family, because it was unsafe for him to live in Beijing without the protection of the embassy because of the political repression by the warlords in Beijing. We spoke quite a bit about Li in our episodes on the founding and earliest period of the Chinese Communist Party. His ideas about the importance of the peasantry in the revolution may have been an early influence on Mao Zedong, and we discussed his connection with Mao when Mao was in Beijing back in episode 14. Li was a popular and influential figure far beyond the ranks of the Communist Party. And so, when the warlord troops entered the Soviet embassy compound in Beijing and arrested him, it was another major blow against the Communist Party. Here's how Li's daughter described the arrest in an account written years later. Okay, she begins the account um, just talking about how she's sitting on a bench outside the house, reading a newspaper while her father was inside writing at his desk, and suddenly she heard the sound of gunfire and fled in the house. Uh, he told her not to be frightened and took out his pistol. Now, this starts the quote. Quote, After a while, I heard the sound of heavy leather shoes. My heart beat violently, but I didn't make a sound. Only my terrified eyes looked to father. Don't let anyone escape, a gruff voice shouted from outside the window. Suddenly, military police in gray uniforms and black boots, detectives in plain clothes, and civil police in black uniforms swarmed into the small room. Like a horde of devils, they surrounded us, each of them holding pistols which they coldly and cruelly pointed at father and me. Among the police and soldiers was the servant Yen Chen, who had been arrested a few days before. His arms were bound with a thin white rope that was grasped tightly by a fat detective who held him like a dog. From behind his long hair, there appeared a pale face. At a glance, we knew he had been tortured. They had brought him to identify us. The fat detective of cruel features and evil eyes pointed to my father and asked Yen Chen, Do you know him? He simply shook his head, indicating that he did not. You don't know him? Well, I know him, replied the detective with a cunning, cold grin. He then ordered his men, Take care of him. Don't let him commit suicide. Grab his pistol. They immediately took father's pistol and searched him. Father maintained his habitual, serene attitude. He did not argue with them because he knew it would be useless. Shouting cruel and violent curses, they tied up father. I saw them dragging him out, and I too was arrested by this mob. End quote. Lee was held until April 28th when he and 19 other communists were executed by strangulation. In Shanghai, even as the initial wave of repression in the days following April 12th continued, the local communist leadership and Comintern representatives began meeting to figure out what had gone wrong and to begin figuring out who got the blame. 
Some, like Gregory Wojtynski, chairman of the Far Eastern Bureau of the Comintern, even came down from Wuhan clandestinely in order to join in the meetings. Different theses were put forward to explain the defeat. On April 15th, Zhou Enlai argued that the party had simultaneously appeared to attack the capitalists, while also relying on the Chinese national bourgeoisie to lead the nationalist revolution, which meant that they had both made the capitalists into their enemies while failing to sufficiently prepare the workers to lead a revolution. Some speakers accused the Shanghai communists of being too mild toward Chiang Kai-shek, while others pointed out the contradictory directives coming from Moscow regarding how to relate to Chiang. One thing that I hope has come across in the several episodes that we've devoted to the revolutionary movement in Shanghai is that the process was very complex and difficult for those involved. Naturally, there was continuing debate and conflict over the political strategy to be pursued, both among the communists in China and in the directives they received from Moscow. And this, in and of itself, resulted in some confusion about strategy and tactics. On top of this, there were immense difficulties which arose as policies encountered the real world in practice, with what was articulated on paper and in meetings, usually failing to translate exactly as conceived in advance in the real world, as other political actors responded to events and policies in unforeseen ways. Indeed, one of the criticisms leveled during these meetings at the Shanghai regional leadership of the Communist Party was that it had, quote, failed to establish proletarian hegemony over the petty bourgeoisie, end quote. Um, it's, it's hard not to just sort of laugh at criticisms like that and say, well, easier said than done. Um, the common thread in all these early summation meetings was that somehow, if only the right policy had been adopted, that the tragedy, tragedy could have been avoided and even that the communists could have become the dominant political force in Shanghai through the events of March and April. That somehow Chiang Kai-shek and the Guomindang right could have been outmaneuvered. The one thing that was not recognized in these meetings to sum up the tragedy in mid-April in Shanghai was just how heavily the decks had been stacked against the communists. The simple fact that the Guomindang right controlled the army and that the Guomindang right correctly identified the opposition of interests between the capitalists who it represented and the workers represented by the Communist Party meant that more or less inevitably, the Communist Party would lose in Shanghai in 1927. The most insightful and concise summation of what had gone wrong came a few months later in August during another emergency conference when Mao Zedong, reflecting on these events in Shanghai and other events, which we'll be talking about soon, said that, quote, we used to censure Sun Yat-sen for engaging only in a military movement, and we did just the opposite, not undertaking a military movement, but exclusively a mass movement. We must know that political power is obtained from the barrel of a gun. End quote. Uh, fundamentally, whatever errors in policy may have been made or not made by the Shanghai communists, without an armed force 
which could counter Chiang Kai-shek's National Revolutionary Army, they simply could not win the city. But the road to grasping this point, which would be one of several central problems for reorienting the Chinese Revolution onto the path that ultimately led it to victory 22 years later, was going to go through some twists and turns. And there's a lot more to say about the aftermath of the events we covered in this episode, and we'll be moving on to talk about that in our next episode. And before we end here, I want to remind you that if you enjoyed this episode or learned something from it, ratings and reviews can help other people to discover this podcast.